This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Have you ever stopped to wonder what exactly success means to you? Is it money, fame, power, all of the above or none at all? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Redefining Success, a show where we speak to passionate people from various fields about their lives, what makes them tick and what the word success means to them. In light of International Women's Day 2022, which happened on the 8th of March, we're going to be highlighting various women on the show throughout the month from journalists to entrepreneurs, artists, and even homemakers too. My guest on today's show is Alina Murang. She's a Malaysian singer-songwriter and sape player. Welcome to the show, Alina. I want to start by asking you, how do you define success? What does that word mean to you? You know, the, the definition of success for me has changed, obviously, as I grow. And I think for now and for the last few years, success has meant that you know, I'm able to do the things that I love doing. I'm able to use my gifts um, to serve the community and to make a living out of that. And I think for me, that's what's been, sorry, for me, that's what's been my success. You know, I kind of learned to steer away from that definition of, um, of you know, making X amount of money, right. owning X, Y, and Z, <laughs> and, um, you know, achieving X, Y, and Z awards, for example. I think for me, success is just that, that, that feeling and that ability to do what I love and to, yeah, to earn a living out of it. Um, you said your your definition of success has changed over time. Um, what was it before? Was was there a point where um, your definition of success, your idea of success revolved around the things that you say it doesn't revolve around anymore? It could be making X amount of money, winning all uh, X amount of awards, um, so on and so forth. Was, th- was there a point where you viewed success through that lens? Um, yeah, there definitely was. I mean... You know, growing up and then later on going to business school and then um, just having that idea that society and the people around you kind of measure success on those um, kind of cliche stepping stones of life, right? right? So getting that job, getting the promotions, um, getting those bonuses, that's what I thought was a measurement of success. And then as I was slowly able, you know, very gradually, very slowly, um, (laughs) kind of wangle myself out of that. And actually having quite a lot of journalists force me answer this question, how to define (laughs) success, what does success mean to you? You know, it helps. It helped me, it helped me really think, hey, what is success? You know, especially in the music field, it's completely different. Right. Um, I'm curious, do you think your current um, sort of um, view of success, um, is it uh, just because of a shift in mindset, um, which is interesting as well? Or um, have you reached a position of, I don't know, comfort or or privilege perhaps um, in which you can have this sort of um, view of success? Okay, you're making me think. (laughs) (laughs) It's twofold. I think it comes two ways, you know. I I think that if you really tap into your natural gifts, you know, the gifts that that 
that are given to you and you work on those gifts and, and, you know, sharpen those skills, naturally you will be, you know, you will stand out in that field and you will be better than, you know, people that do not have those right. natural gifts. So in a way, I think, you know, it just starts from, from really making space and making time and having that awareness of your gifts. And it, it, it does take that courage to step out and to follow that path. And, you know, there have been those years where I really, really struggled and, you know, really, really kind of squeezed out my bank accounts as well and just continue, continue staying on that path. Um, yeah. And I think I am in a place of certain place of, you know, comfort and ease now mm-hmm. where I'm able to say that, but it didn't come with no challenges. When did you develop a passion for music? And at which point did you feel that you can make a career out of this gift of yours? I struggled with calling myself a musician, right? Because mm-hmm. for the longest time, I felt that I I wasn't a musician because I didn't go to music school. I struggled with music theory um, because a lot of the traditional traditional music that I learn are via oral traditions. You know, nothing is written down. Right. And I thought that to be a musician nowadays, I need to have that, you know, just like a, a, a stronger background in terms of music theory, going to music school and stuff like that. But I grew up with the Rainforest World Music Festival in Kuching. I've been going, you know, at that time, I'd gone every year since I was nine years old. And I just knew I felt so happy when I was at the festival. I felt so in awe of all of the musicians that had come from around the world. And I remember in, I think in Form 2 or Form 3, I told my mom, I just blurted out to my mom that, you know, oh my gosh, I would love to be one of them. Right. And and she looked at me and she said, you know, a lot of them are not full-time musicians. They have their own other jobs and other careers. Why don't you go and talk to them? So I did. Like, she brought me backstage to talk to them. Some of them, I remember, were like pharmacists, teachers, and whatever else that they were. <laughs> um, I then actually pursued a business degree, went right. to the corporate world. And long story short, I think it was like, um, in 2016, uh, only then did I become a full-time sub player. I never in a million years thought I could be a full-time musician, let alone a full-time sub musician, uh, because it was like, nobody knew what sub was back then, you know? Definitely. Why did you pick up the sub You know, why did you choose to play music with roots in Sarawak and, and Bonian culture as opposed to, you know, any other instrument? Well, I've been learning traditional dance since I was six. And um, so a bit of background, my father is Kalabit, which mm-hmm. is one of the, the Dayak uh, communities in Sarawak. As, yeah, so I started learning the dance when I was six. And then every weekend we would go to our cousin's house to learn dance. And then that slowly progressed into learning singing, Kalabit singing which was not common at the time. It, it wasn't common for even the elders to sing collabit, um, the old collabit songs. And then because the dancing went along with Sapit music, so uh, in the year 2000, half of us girls decided to learn Sapit and the other half would stay dancers. And so I think it's very much something that was ingrained in me 
at a very, very young age. I didn't think it was strange or so different because I grew up with it, Mm -hmm. right? It was only when I left to university in England that I suddenly realized that our culture is so unique and it's so special uh, because I really missed it when I was outside of the country. Right. And and yeah, I think that that was kind of um, a small turning point for me. How, how important is this culture to you? Because you come from a mixed heritage, right? Your dad is Srawakian, I'm Klabit, mm-hmm. and your mom is of uh, European heritage. Yeah. Why is this Srawakian culture so important to you? And why do you think it's important um, to preserve and continue to promote the culture? Initially, for me, it was a very personal journey. Being this mixed kid, I struggled struggled a lot with identity, right? And um, having this grounding in traditional arts, in our music, our costumes, our stories, really grounded me and it really gave me roots. Um, And I think that's what cultural heritage does. It doesn't matter you know, it doesn't matter what the heritage is. I think just knowing where you come from enables you to go forward. And it's a very abstract thing. And it, it it's a journey that I'm still going on, right? And I've also seen, you know, other people reaching out, other younger people reaching out and, you know, wanting to learn sape, wanting to learn more about um, this culture because, because, they just don't know it, you know. Right. And ironically, it was actually my mother. She's the European one. My mother was the one who pushed me to learn all of these things. What was your childhood like? How were you during um, your schooling days? Um, I'm, you know, did you get good grades? Um, what were your interests and ambitions back then? <laughs> uh yeah, I got excellent grades in school. <laughs> I was in quite a competitive school right. in, in Kuching with quite competitive parents as well. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, in Form 4, I got put in the science stream. And I remember that the only thing I liked about science stream was biology class because I got to draw a lot. Right. I got to draw cells, right, at that mm-hmm. time. The amoebas and protozoas. Anyway, I was in I was in science stream for like I think a month, and I just knew that my heart was in the arts, and I just begged and begged and begged <laughs> my parents to let me transfer over to the art stream. And I think we all know, like you know, the stereotype of having that kid in an art stream is is um, not one that my parents loved. Right, but. So you're, you're saying you're, even your European uh, parent was very much a stereotypically Asian in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Because, okay, so she is, uh, she's actually half Italian and right. Italians actually have very similar family values right. to, to Asian parents. So um, I bless them, you know, even in their worry and everything, they let me transfer over to the art stream and I just, I, I loved it, you know, not, not just like studying uh, visual arts itself and music, but just um, that—that's where I had. That's where I learned more about uh, economics, pedagangan. Um, I did really well in my subjects. I got straight A's um, over there, and then after that in college, I went over to the UK and and 
then pursued a business degree. But actually in school, like, you know, throughout my primary years and then secondary years, there was a whole bunch of things I wanted to be. I wanted to be a vet because I love cats. And then I wanted to go into interior design, architecture, marketing. Um, yeah, and then come when it came time to choose my course, I think business was kind of general enough um, a general enough course that my parents and I agreed on put right. it that way on the show with me today is Alina Murang. She's a Malaysian singer-songwriter and sape player. After the break, I ask her, what does it take to be a professional musician in Malaysia? We'll be back with more on Redefining Success, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Redefining Success. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Alina Murang. She's a Malaysian singer-songwriter and sape player. So, Alina, what was the transition period like? Because um, you went to business school and now you're a, uh, you know, now you are making a living uh, being a, you know, an artist, a musician, you teach music. But what was the transition period like? Because I think a lot of people looking from the outside tend to only see the glamorous side of things. It's like, wow, you're this musician and it's really cool and you're doing fun stuff. It's doing, you're doing things that you love and, and it really is cool. But what does it really take um, to be a professional um, artist or musician in Malaysia? I came back to KL because I got offered a job uh, in management consulting, but uh, specializing in environmental sustainability, which is also, you know, something that's very important to me um, because with our Dayak heritage, uh, nature and the environment obviously is also very important to us. So I went in to do that. And I remember just, um, it was a number of things, but I remember going to London to see family and I had the afternoon off and I went to a free art gallery and I was standing in front of these magnificent paintings. And I just felt like, I, I just felt love in my heart, just staring at these paintings. I remember just, you know, saying to my parents, like, I just, I just want to feel this. I just want to be right. around the arts. I didn't know back then if it was going to be in music, in, you know, in the management side of arts, if I was going to be an artist. I just knew I wanted to be around the arts. And, uh, you know, I took the leap to do that. I wanted to be a visual artist, actually, a painter. Mm-hmm. And then I, so I left the corporate job, um, went to art school for a year, and then finished that. And then when I finished my course, my dad actually asked me, so what are you going to do now? You can go back to the corporate world. You know, you haven't been out of work too long and you are still young. You can just, you know, go and apply for a job again. <laughs> and I said, I said, you know, I, I really feel that this is the right path for me. Just give me, you know, I, I forgot I said, I think maybe six months right. just to see where this path takes me. And, you know, I was getting like commissions for artwork, uh, to do murals and things like that. But what I didn't expect was for people to call me to go and play sape because not many people in KL knew I played sape back then. Right. So it's just like a friend's wedding, a little office dinner, and then a little NGO thing. And then I took on an office job um, with an NGO, part, uh, full-time actually, and kind of juggled the two. And then two years later, my contract with the NGO was coming up 
and my music career was going up. So I decided just to jump into music full time. So it's been a very, very organic journey. And I think those years around like 2012 to 2014, a lot of it was listening to my intuition, just listening. I know it sounds very cheesy, la. <laughs> you know, listening to my intuition and listening to my heart that this is this was really, really what I wanted to do. And I felt like this was the right path. And I, I, I don't know, it's just crazy. And then I remember I had um, a friend who was studying to be a life coach and she needed hours. Uh, she needed to clock up some hours to, in order to be certified as an, as a life coach. So she said, Elena, can I do the coaching with you? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and from there, I remember saying like, Oh, I want to travel and I want to play music. And the years after that, I managed to do that, you know, have my music bring me to travel to festivals around the world. And so, um, you know, I say, yeah, it was a lot of following my heart and intuition, but it was coupled with a lot of hard work as well. How grueling were your days, um, especially <laughs> in the early part, you know, like, like you said, 2012 to 2015, 16. Um, how challenging were some of those days? Well, in those days, because I had a full-time job as well, so... I think the biggest challenge was in getting enough sleep. It was <laughs> managing my time. And, you know, as, as artists and musicians and creatives, sleep is very, very important, mm -hmm. you know, sleep and rest, because without that rest, you aren't able to perform and you aren't able to create. So it was really a lesson in, in finding that balance and, um, you know, prioritizing your time. I think a lot of my relationships suffered, like with my family, with my friends, um, because I was so focused on, on, on the goal, right? And I think what a lot of people don't know as well is that for my genre of music, which is world music, there's a very weak industry of world music in Southeast Asia right. and in Malaysia, because for world music, you need very different agents, managers, labels, publishers, um, as compared to pop music, rock music. So I felt, actually back then, I felt very alone in my journey. Um, so yeah, actually, I think that was the biggest challenge. Completely forgot about that, you know. I, I, <laughs> I, I felt quite alone. And, and so what kept you going during those days? It was the listeners, the audience, you know. People kept... Like, I kept getting inquiries to go and play. I kept getting messages in my DMs about how touched people were, how inspired they were, not just Malaysians, but from, you know, across the world. I remember I got messages from India, Singapore, um, from just, from like odd corners of the world, just saying how inspired they were to go and uh, search for their own heritage and Actually, that kept me going, the, the audience, the listeners, the people wanting to, to hire me to play more. And I just kept going. And there were musicians that came alongside me, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I started collecting um, people who wanted to work with me. And even today, like the people who, who want to work with me, the collaborators, my team, I see that they really believe in not just me, but what, you know, what, what flows through me, the music, the stories, the culture, the heritage and, and all of that. And yeah, everyone around me just inspires me to keep going because with this path that I'm taking, I feel, I felt like 
I didn't have an example to follow. I didn't have, um, you know, there's no path to follow. Right. Since it is um, International uh, Women's Day, it was International Women's Day um, on the 8th of March, but we throughout this month, we want to highlight um, women and even like specific challenges that women may go through. I'm wondering if you faced um, any challenges or went through, you know, had to face discrimination or had to jump through specific hoops um, in the industries because of your gender. Did you experience um, anything like that? Well, the music industry globally, I forgot the exact number now, but it was something like it's um, 70% male and 30% mm-hmm. female. And, you know, whilst you might question that because you see a lot of women, a lot of women singers, but the people that you work with behind the scenes, um, very few of them are female. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize how much I missed working with women until I went to Taiwan. In Taiwan, I worked with, you know, women uh, record label managers, producers, um, musicians. And and for me, that was something that was almost life-changing in my career. And as a woman in this industry, um, I mean, thank God I've always been around very, very supportive people, whether male or female. But I find that, you know, sometimes you you're just not listened to or taken as seriously sometimes as um, a male counterpart. I mean, that just means I just have to be a bit more louder probably um, than my male counterparts when I'm asking for something, you know, even when I'm just asking for whatever more, you know, more volume in my sape or something, you know, (laughs) it's it's little, you know, small things like that, that you start to, you start to realize, which which is a bit frustrating, but, you know, we just have to power through it and, and stand up for ourselves and stand up for other women as well. Certainly. And, you know, you mentioned that. Is that the, the, the issue? Is that the feeling that you're not being listened to and, and whatnot for you personally? I mean, because you said that, you know, in Taiwan, the dynamics are completely different and you didn't mm-hmm. even realize how much you missed working with women. What is that? What is the dynamic? What is the difference there um, based on your observation and experience? Um, I, I, I personally find that working with the women in Taiwan, it was very, very, it was a very, um, supportive atmosphere. Mm. And I feel that, um, when we stand together as, you know, when we, when we work together with other women, I feel like they, they're more understanding of our context right. and, it just felt like I, I felt more comfortable working with them as well. Mm-hmm. And so now even in Malaysia, I always seek out, um, I always seek out women first as an option to work with. How do you measure growth? Because you said your ideas of success don't necessarily, I, I, I mean, money is important, I'm sure. But, yeah. you know, to you, it doesn't necessarily directly tie into money or awards. Um, you know, just because you have more money today doesn't mean you see yourself as more successful. Um, what? So how do you measure growth then? So I measure growth through, I think one of the main measurements is the audience and the listeners. You know, if I see that they've been really um, touched by by a song, by a performance, by a music video, for example, then I'm very happy, right. you know, because for the arts, what we do, what we want to do is we want to 
communicate. We want to communicate a story, an emotion, a cause. So if, if the audience and the listeners have captured that, um, then I feel very, very happy. And uh, for me, a lot of it in the earlier years was to do with reach because our music and our language is something that, you know, it comes from this very small kampong area. Right. <laughs> Right, in the rainforest. Was, and we're such a small people. And so for me, what was important was the reach. And I remember being in a festival in Spain, looking out over a crowd of 20,000 people. Wow. And I was singing a song solo. And every like I could see people in the front row cheering up. And I just thought to myself, the number of people in this audience is way more than the number of Calabic people in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and they don't even understand my language. I don't understand their language. And for me, that the more people hear our stories and hear our language and hear our songs and our instruments and see our costumes, that's what keeps us alive. Like, stories stay alive the more that people listen. Right. So yeah, so for me, it's also reach. What has been your proudest moment um, of your musical career so far? My proudest? Um, actually, one of it, and I'm not taking the credit for myself at mm-hmm. all. It was, you know, a whole a whole bunch of people that did this, is to see the sapet become so commonplace these days. You know what I mean? I mean, I think many of your friends now, not all, but many of your friends will probably have seen or heard of a sape at right. as as compared to when I started playing 20 years ago I think nobody in my generation was learning and even in my dad's generation they were hardly my dad's generation hardly played sape so it's been so incredible just to see that rise of an instrument that could have gone the other way and could have just become very very you know what's the word like endangered yeah. or just died out so I'm, I'm, I just feel so proud to be part of that movement. Um, Do you uh, find that you have more students as well coming to you as compared to, because you teach SAPE as well, um, mm-hmm. like compared to, let's say, when you first started teaching and, and things like that, has there been a growing sense of interest oh, among definitely. people? Right. Actually, one of my proudest moments was, I forgot the year now, was it 2016 or 2017? Right. There were seven of us professional sapit players living in KL and we all got together and held a workshop in KL uh, for beginners. And the number of workshop participants we could have was like, I think 60, because that was how many sapits we had between us. And the class was booked out three times. Wow. I remember just being in that hall and looking at all these people different ages different ethnicities all wanting to learn sape and i i remember i had goosebumps just looking at them because you know even five years before that i feel like it would have we would have not seen that alina i want to circle back to what you mentioned at the start um you talked about how you know success to you um isn't has changed over the years and it no longer is about how much money you're bringing in necessarily. It's it's no longer about how much awards you're winning. Um, it is more about being able to do um, what you love with the gifts that you have um, and, and, and of course, um, being, uh, being able to sustain yourself that way. Um, now, reflecting on where you are today, 
do you find that you are content, happy, and do you find that you have achieved um, your definition of success? So just to, I guess, dive deeper into that, into that definition, it's, yes, yeah, doing, what, doing what I love. And because I do what I love and what I'm naturally gifted at, it's, you know, that makes the finances roll in. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's not right. because I, you know, I, I have the savings and financial backing mm-hmm. to do what I love. Right. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a circular thing, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's because I've stepped into my passion and my gifts that, um, that I'm able to receive from it. And I always say that the SAPE has given me more than I could ever imagine. It's given me, you know, it's given me income. It's given me experiences. It's given me life. So I feel like I'm in a, I'm in a good place now um, to be able to do that. Obviously, I, I have to say I, I do work very hard and I have a team that works with me that also works. Right. I'm happy to be in this place that I am now and I'm, you know, looking forward to continue growing. I don't know what is ahead of me, mm-hmm. but that's, that's um, something to look forward to. And yeah. Certainly. Before we, you know, before I let you go, what does it feel like doing something that you love every single day? I, I, I never take it for granted, you know. Every day, I'm so grateful to be on this path and... Um, I just I feel joy I feel happiness I feel um, I feel challenged I feel like it's a good challenge I feel responsible yeah I mean overall it's a great feeling um, except for the days when I'm stuck and just, <laughs> um, a little bit stressed right but it all comes part and parcel of it so yeah I'm just I, I just feel incredibly grateful on that note thank you so much for speaking with me today Alina Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Alina Murang. She's a Malaysian singer, songwriter and Sape player. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out the podcast on the BFM app, bfm.my or pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Redefining Success, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.